Welcome to the second episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we're going to be braving Room 106, the nightmarish place filled by the snowstorm of new planning information and extracting the key information you need to know. Do you think we should remind the listeners why it's called Room 106? Well, it's an allusion to Room 101, the chamber in George Orwell's novel 1984, which contains a prisoner's worst fears. We renamed it Room 106 in honour of the painful and protracted Section 106 negotiations that take place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure to mitigate the impact of their schemes. Ah, OK. I guess it probably works best if you don't think about it too deeply. Probably does. Anyway, coming up, the key news stories of the past fortnight and why they might be important for you. We analysed the fallout from the Prime Minister's suggestion that housing need can be met without greenfield development, following news that local authorities are pausing their plan-making in light of it. And Reader's Choice, the story that you don't exactly need to know about, but which has surprisingly high traffic on our website, planningresource.co.uk. By the end of the show, you should know enough about recent events to be able to approach the water cooler without trepidation. Absolutely. Time to face the snowstorm, John, and enter room 106. Here we go. Well, here we are again in room 106, the repository of recent planning information. It looks as forbidding as ever. John seems pretty unfazed, though. Yeah, it's not very welcoming, but I'm in here every day helping to gather material for our subscribers' daily news bulletin. Oh yes, always worth mentioning that. So, enough of the preamble. What's caught your attention over the past couple of weeks? So, the first story I was going to talk about is the budget, which was um, announced at the very end of last month. Um, There wasn't actually much in there about planning, so there's no mention of the... So usually when the budget's announced or the autumn statement, we can expect a load of um, planning announcements to accompany it. But there's actually no mention of the government's long-awaited changes to the planning system that were announced in last year's white paper. And, uh, of course, everyone in the, in the sector is on tender hooks about that. What they did announce was uh, £65 million of funding for English local authorities to create what they're calling a new digital system to improve the planning regime. Uh, And there's also a lot of money, £1.8 billion of funding for um, unlocking the delivery of 160,000 homes on brownfield and uh, what they're calling underused land across England. And beyond that, there was lots of funding announcements for infrastructure and transport. Okay, okay, interesting. So the the real concrete thing for our audience in there is the is the uh, is the sixty five million pounds for planning authorities for you know associated with digitisation. Yeah, and of course, I guess this comes against the context of the government's plans set out in the planning white paper for the whole planning process moving from what the white paper described as a process based on documents to a process driven by data and they promised in in that document that local authorities were going to be helped to use digital tools to support a new civic engagement process um, for local plans and decision making so i guess this is this is money that's supposed to take that agenda forward 
but what kind of spending can be funded through it? So at the moment, the details are a bit hazy and um, both the Treasury and the Housing Department aren't saying much more when we've asked them for more details. Um, so the money's aimed at local authorities. Um, and we know that because there was a briefing note issued by the Treasury a few days before the um, the budget. They said the money's going to be, in the first phase of delivery, it's going to be rolled out to up to 175 local authorities in England. And it said it would support um, what it calls digital transformation of the planning system through the development of new software. Um, and it linked the, uh, it said the investment was uh, part of the government's planning reform programme. And so it's linking it there to the um, the white paper changes that it announced last year. And as you say, there was lots of stuff in there about d- digital transformation of the planning system. So we're waiting for further details to be announced by the housing department. Okay, so often the case, isn't it, with these big funding announcements in the budget that it's very hard to actually, beyond the sort of headline figure and maybe a few more details in the in the in the budget document about the the uh, the time span of the scheme, it's quite often quite hard to put your finger on exactly who the money is available for and exactly what the criteria are. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's often a lot of government spin with these things, and it's it's tricky to really pin it down to the specifics. Um, we do know that earlier in the week of the budget announcement, the, the housing department itself, rather than the Treasury, they announced uh, £1 million of funding for English councils to trial what they call digital tools to um, engage more people on the plan- in the planning system, in the planning process, sorry. Um, so it comes on the back of that, but this is a much bigger slice of funding. And uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, they also announced a lot of um, funding for Brownfield, uh, for delivering new homes of Brownfield land. And similarly, there wasn't much specifics with it. Um, we do know that there was um, £1.8 billion um, announced in total for housing supply between now mm-hmm. and twenty five twenty six. So um, next over the next four or five years. And of that, you've got 1.5 billion, which is the vast majority of it, which is going to be used to, um, in the words of the Treasury, regenerate underused land and deliver transport links and community facilities. And they're saying that's going to help unlock 160,000 homes. And alongside that, there's 300 million pounds for um, councils and combined authorities, which is specifically aimed at unlocking brownfield sites for housing. Okay, well, thanks very much, John, um, for that one. What else is uh, has been catching your eye over the last couple of weeks? Well, there was a report that came out last week by a group of house builders um, and developers that called for radical rethink in the way that uh, local housing need is assessed. And the aim is to boost delivery in the uh, north of Midlands. And it's as part of the government's levelling up agenda. And what's interesting about this is that it's reportedly been backed by Housing Secretary uh, Michael Gove. And these developers are um, calling for um, higher housing need levels in outside of um, London and the South East, where traditionally housing need is very high. They're saying if the government wants to uh, level up the country, which means improving economic growth in areas outside of London and the South East and improving outcomes for people there, then they need to look at changing the way uh, housing need is calculated. And if you're improving economic growth prospects in those areas, then you're going to need a lot more homes to be built there. 
to accommodate all the workers who were going to be uh, living there and moving there. Okay, so this is about changing the way in which housing need is assessed mm. so that in a same set of circumstances, you come up with a, with a need figure which would be higher for a place in the north than it is now and lower for a place in the, in the southeast, very crudely. Yeah, that's right. I'm not entirely clear if it involves reducing housing need in the south and London, but it certainly involves increasing it in um, in areas outside of the um, outside of London, the southeast. And what did um, what is Michael Gove supposed to have said that made people think that he's behind this? So, according to a report in the Times, they said that um, Gove attended the launch of the report. And um, he said that and he was quoted as saying um, uh, in the past, we've tended to reinforce housing numbers in areas where there's already been housing growth. And if we want to change the geography of this country and the opportunities that people enjoy, we need to look ahead at where we want to go as a country. So he seems to have offered um, supporting words about the report, although we couldn't get confirmation from the government about that. But if you look at his speech at the Tory party conference last month, he said very similar things about making, uh, as part of his levelling up agenda, he wanted to make it a priority to um, focus on urban regeneration. He wanted to focus on brownfield sites. So it chimes with that. Okay, okay. It's interesting that, that he should say that. Is there no... I mean, does the current government method of assessing housing need not factor in if there are if there are good reasons and good evidence to suggest that you know a place in the north which um, has got strong economic prospects maybe hasn't hitherto had very strong housing demand but because of the strong economic prospects is likely to have higher housing demand in the future does the um does the current method of assessing housing need is it not able to take that into account well it can actually. I think in theory it can. Um, so the government always stresses that. Sorry, the housing department always stresses that the uh, that the current method of assessing housing need, what it, what's known in the sector as the standard method for assessing housing need, is a starting point for councils. So at the moment, it just takes account of uh, household growth, uh, affordability. So looking at um, house prices in area, how they relate to local income. And uh, those are the two factors. But councils are allowed to go further if they wish. So um, some councils in the north of England and in the Midlands already do go further by taking account of their economic, of, of economic development, economic growth ambitions, and go beyond what the standard method says they should plan for, for a higher housing target. But there's no obligation currently in the standard method for them to do that. Um, but... Um, I, I guess one way or another, the, the big question is going to be: there is a there's a a big political pressure on the on the government to a show that uh, show voters in the in the Midlands and North that they're backing investment in the in the uh, in the Midlands and North, and uh, b show voters in some. Bits of the southeast that are under heavy housing pressure that they uh, they may not have to take all the housing that they fear they're going to have to take, and it's a quite a sort of neat political solution for the government to be able to push some of that 
projected development into the what they would describe as overheated parts of the southeast and um, and into the north and midlands. But I guess there's a there's a danger that what they're going to be doing is pushing housing provision a, a, away from places where it is most needed and into places where there is less evidence of need. Yes, that's right. So the, um, the, the yeah, so we will hear a lot about the government's uh, leveling up agenda, and um, this is this is being framed as as part of that that the government wants to boost um, housing growth alongside economic development in the north of the Midlands and away from uh, the overheated what, what Boris Johnson calls the overheated southeast. Um, yes, and obviously it's very politically contentious in. Uh, London and the home counties having such high levels of uh, such high housing targets that councils are meant to meet and many parts of the country parts of the north and the midlands they're actually very keen the local councils um, on more housing to uh, attract new workers. So um, as is always the case with um, with a new Secretary of State there's an awful lot of attention at the moment focused on uh, on every every word he says that could give an indication of his um, uh, the future line that he'll be taking on uh, on planning policy. And um, I think there's something else that he said recently that's uh, attracted your attention. Yes, that's right. So um, at the end of last month, he um, took questions in the House of Commons. I think this is the first time he took questions as, as Housing Secretary. So that really um, gave us some insight into his thinking as Housing Secretary and what it means for planning. And one of the things he said was that he um, is a question actually from the chairman of the uh, Housing Housing and Communities Select Committee, uh, Clive Betts, and Go said he welcomed the idea of maintaining residents' ability to comment on and influence individual planning applications. So, what's the, the, what's the what's the context for that? Is it this is in response to some suggestion that residents would no longer be able to have much influence over individual planning applications? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, one of the key controversies from last summer's white paper was that the government proposed front loading the plan making process um, and then community consultation on on planning proposals onto the plan making process. Uh, and it would limit the ability of both members of the public and local, locally elected members to have their say on or determine individual planning applications further down the line. Um, there was a big report that came out in the summer from the Housing Communities and Local Government Committee, and um, there, this was a key criticism that they made was that um, they said the government needs to keep the current system where members of the public can have a say on all individual planning applications. And so Betts asked him about this and Gove's response would suggest that the government, this is an area that the government is rethinking, given that Gove gave a sympathetic response to um, the proposal. Do, do you think that residents and, 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 and councillors who might have feared that their opportunity, well, residents' opportunity to um, to sort of lobby their councillors on um, on which way to vote on a planning application and um, and councillors' ability to vote on planning applications. Do you think they can be reassured that um, they're uh, they are now going to retain those powers, or or was Go's statement a, a bit more guarded than that? It, well, it was more guarded, definitely. Um, 
his, his exact words were in response to um, Bet saying, did he agree with the HLG's committee's report that um, there should be an opportunity for local people to be able to comment on individual plan applications? Gove said, I certainly welcome that direction of travel. So it, it was certainly a bit, it wasn't uh, explicit. Okay. And um, uh, Clive Betts was also asking him, about or, or or pushing him to to um, to simplify local plans. What, what does he have to say about that? So yeah, what again the the context to this in the, in the white paper last summer they said that um, uh, one of the key proposals was about simplifying the um, the plan making system. Um, one of the reasons being that not only would that be quicker for councils to produce them, but also it'd be easier for local people to understand what they're proposing. And the, the HLG committee report actually welcomed that and said, yeah, this was something we would support. And Bet suggested that um, local plans need to be the heart of the plan-led system and need to be simpler and easier to understand for community buy-in. And Gove said he entirely agreed with that. And just very quickly, am I right in thinking that we've had the first two um, Secretary of State decisions made under, under sort of Gove's leadership of the department? Yes, we have. Um, although they haven't been made by Gove himself, they've actually they were made by the housing minister Christopher Pincher on Gove's behalf. Oh, okay. And any anything to sort of take away from those? One was a refusal of a big housing scheme, and one was uh, an approval where he he overturned uh, a council's refusal. Okay. Um, so we're just beginning to get you know one or two indications of Michael Gove's approach. He's actually, as we're recording this, he's um, he's in front of the select committee, isn't he? So um, yeah, that's so, right. Um, but we we may know a bit more by the time uh, this um, this podcast goes out. But um, anyway, we will see. Okay, um, what's your what's your final choice from of, of the news stories um, for the past fortnight, John? So the final one is uh, one that's got a lot of interest from our readers, and it's uh, a council that has issued a statement calling for respect and tolerance for councillors and officers following an increasing level of threats, aggression and intimidation linked to a planning application for a warehouse development on a former Greenbelt site. And um, it's very unusual for a council to issue a statement like this. And it's it relates to an application for a very big, um, for a, a pretty sizable development of two warehouses and the, the statement gives us some more details. It says, The strength of feeling on the development is loud and clear and to be welcomed, but there is a right and healthy way to debate and express strongly held views and a wrong way. It says, The increasing levels of threat, aggression and intimidation faced on a daily basis by both local councillors and officers of the council is unacceptable and there can be no justifiable excuse for it whatsoever. And they said they issued the statement ahead of its the application's Determination at the planning committee to urge restraint and say enough is enough. Please treat others as you would wish to be treated with respect and tolerance. Um, it, it's not entirely clear what these threats are or who they were from. We've asked the council for more details, but it's refused to say, give us more details. The item was actually deferred at the meeting. Um, it had been recommended for approval by officers. So it's going to be reconsidered at a future meeting. Okay. Well, one thing that was notable about it wasn't it, it was a cross-party statement. The fact that all the parties felt they needed to come together to make the statement seems significant. Yeah, and it arrives. There's a story you probably remember we did a couple of weeks ago uh, that also got us of interest, where 
there was a um a planning committee meeting in uh, in north london where um some members of the public um actually made threats and and threw an object at the um the committee members because they were unhappy with a decision that had been made over a housing scheme so it does appear that fe- you know, obviously feelings always have always run high about planning but um, it seems that there's, there's been quite a few incidents recently where um, members of the public have crossed a red line when it comes to uh, objecting to contentious planning applications. Okay, well, many thanks for that, John. Uh, more details of all of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. But for the moment, I'm going to have to leave you to continue battling with the news blizzard, because now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. But for the moment, I'm going to have to leave you to continue battling with the news blizzard because now it's time for this week's deep dive. In the first episode of the podcast, we touched on the Prime Minister's comments to the Conservative Party conference, which prompted at least one national newspaper to print a headline saying that he'd pledged not to build on green fields. Since then, at least two councils have said that they'll pause their plan making to take account of what they see as an impending change of government policy. So to understand what's going on and what the implications might be, I need to find, somewhere in the depths of Room 106, David Blackman, who's been covering this for us. Ah, there he is. David, good to see you. Oh, hello, Richard. Hi, I hope you've had some time out of Room 106 since we last spoke. I have, yes, yes. I've been to the West Country amongst other places, so refreshed and revived. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, can you start off by just telling us what the Prime Minister said to the party conference? Um, well, apart from the jokes, of course, which um, featured heavily on the, um, on, the evening, on the evening news that night, um, there were a few nuggets which have been sort of picked up by, um, by people in the planning world. Um, I mean, the, the, the most obvious of these were that... Uh, his, his rejection of the idea that, you know, that we must build homes on green fields um, in England's overheating southeast, and instead there should be a preference for beautiful homes on brownfield sites. He also had some sort of slightly more florid language about a immemorial view of chalk downland being desecrated by ugly new homes. Um, and this was a, co- a constant anxiety of those living in the home counties. OK, so in terms of what he actually said about the... Greenfields. Have you got the Have you got the the quote to hand? Because I, I, from what I um, remember of it, it's slightly hard quote to pin down. Indeed, yes. As a, as a lot of um, the thing. Uh, I mean, what did we see here? Um, you can see how much room there is to build the homes that young families need in this country. Not on greenfields, not just jammed in the southeast, but beautiful homes and brownfield sites in places where homes make sense. Okay. You could read that one way as saying that some of the homes that young families need could be built without disturbing greenfield sites. Mm. Or you could read it as we can build the homes, all the homes that young families need, without going onto greenfield sites. Indeed. So does that indicate a change in government policy? Well, there's there's been a lot of debate about this. Um some people have seized upon the remarks, of course, some local authorities, as you've already flagged up. I think that when I was sort of talking to experts in the field about this, the consensus really was that this doesn't constitute a 
change in policy. Change in policy can't be done as uh, in a party conference speech. It really needs to be delivered in some more formal setting like a written ministerial statement or a, a revision to the uh, NPPF, something like this. So the consensus at the moment is this doesn't represent a change in policy. Okay, okay. So formally, it's not a change in policy at this stage. But a statement like that from the Prime Minister yeah. can change the politics yes. uh, around councils making decisions to plan more housing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's seen as a it's a, it's part of it's part of the mood music effectively surrounding planning policy. Um, some wonder is does this presage, for example, a significant shift in policy which we might see with the levelling up white paper, which of course which we're due to have later in the year or at the beginning of next year. Um, some believe that we will see a, a a change in the standard methodology, for example, that comes out of that. And that, that might uh, bend uh, housing provision more towards the kind of the brownfield areas, which uh, which Boris Johnson was talking about in his speech, and which of course is in line with the government's revision to the standard methodology last year, which at the end of last year, which was to push more more housing through the standard methodology onto the bigger urban areas. And this is the standard methodology which is used for assessing how much housing exactly. is needed yes. in, a, yes. in a particular place. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we sort of alluded to the fact that a, a couple have paused their plan making, but can you give us a bit more detail about that and, and other councils that have responded in, in other ways? Well, so far only two councils have put their head above the parapet. One is Ashfield Council in, uh, in Nottinghamshire. The other is Welland Hatfield Council in Hertfordshire. Um, so no other, no other councils have sort of explicitly paused their local plan preparation. In fact, two councils which are very advanced in their plan preparation, Tunbridge Wells and Windsor and Maidenhead, um, both of course in the, uh, in, in, in the London, London Greenbelt, have said they won't be, be pausing their plan preparation. Okay. And so what are the factors that are prompting some councils to, or that uh, I guess this is speculation, but might mm. be prompting some councils to um, cite the Prime Minister's words as a reason to pause plan making? And what are the factors that make other councils say they're going to carry on? Well, I suppose the, uh, the, the, stated, the stated reason that councils who've paused their plan making would, would say is that... Um, that they've interpreted the Prime Minister's statement to suggest that there will be more of a focus on brownfield land. Um, those councils have then interpreted that to suggest that it's not the right time to release further greenfield and greenfield and greenbelt sites for development um, because they believe that they may not necessarily have to. Um, on the other hand, um, other counts, the other councils in uh, which have opted not to. They've been very adamant that they need to provide the housing, irrespective of whether there is a there may be a, a a change of policy in the in the pipeline. Their position would be the policy is the policy. The policy hasn't changed as a, as a result of the prime minister's statement. And I suppose also there's you've, you've also got to caveat the decision by those councils which have decided to pause is that these are councils which have um, particular local circumstances. Uh, well, in Hatfield, as we know, is a very long-standing, long-running long examination. I think it was described to me as the longest-running examination in, um, 
in English planning, um, five years right. and counting, I understand. Um, Ashfield is a council where Greenfield development has been very controversial at local level um, and, the, and the council has changed control as a result. So you can see there, you can see there are local factors driving some of these decisions. And I guess the, the those who are playing on, they may also be thinking about the the deadline that the government has, absolutely. has set. That's in the year after next. Yes, absolutely. Right? Yes, yes. And a, another point that was powerfully put to me was that the the twenty twenty three deadline hasn't hasn't gone away for ado- adoption of local plans. That's still a that that is that is that is still a a a, a deadline that that's, that that is that is definitely set in policy. Okay. Okay. So those are the councils that have. That, that, that have taken a public position mm. um, but is there likely to be a wider impact on council plan making than than just those councils and if so what are you hearing about you know what impact is it, it, it has uh, Boris Johnson's speech had on those who perhaps aren't being so public about their their reaction to it sure yeah well so far Richard no other councils have shown their hand explicitly the suspicion of many is that other councils who may want to show their hand may be waiting to hear what uh, what what the government tells Wellington Hatfield and Ashfield what what feedback it gives before proceeding down that route themselves. So it's a it is probably at the moment it's probably a watch this space. Fair enough, fair enough, David. Thank you you very much for that. I I, I think you've done more than enough to escape room 106 yourself for uh, for, for the next couple of weeks and uh, maybe uh, see you back in here in a future visit great thank you very much right now to find john again so you can select his reader's choice it's not a big planning decision or a policy announcement but it's gone down very well with our readers Ah, there he is. Hi, Richard. My reader's choice story is it's a court case and it's about it's a follow up to a a high court decision that we reported on earlier in the year where a um, an accountant who built a structure in breach of planning control and it's been called Britain's biggest man cave. He built it in his home, cost about a million pounds, and it's been described as a largely subterranean sports building in the garden of his home. Uh, it includes a gym, bowling alley, casino bar, and a children's play area. And it first emerged in 2014, so seven years ago. And the council said it was built without permission. And they ordered the guy who built it to uh, demolish it and restore the area to its natural, uh, to its original appearance. And so the guy, the, the guy who builds has been in an argument with the council since then. He appealed the enforcement notice, planning inspector back to the council. Then it went to the High Court earlier in the year. And um, at the end of last week, the Court of Appeal issued its verdict. And um, the High Court had said that it had actually given him a suspended prison sentence for disobeying the enforcement notice and a court injunction. And the Court of Appeal has backed that verdict by the High Court. He, he, he actually faces prison for the... Um... For, for ignoring the planning uh, pla- the, the, the planning ruling yes that's right he he was given a six week jail term suspended for twelve months, and that was conditional on him uh, stripping out the interior of the building within eighteen weeks and he appealed against that and now it's 
it's been upheld by the Court of Appeal. Um, it, it's quite a success story for the local council because they've been um, pursuing this for quite some years now. And we know that these um, councils, enforcement teams, have um, many of them been cut to the bone in recent years. So it's uh, it's interesting to see one council enjoying a big enforcement success. It is always amazing how far a few people will push a, uh, a, a you know a, something that's been turned down for planning or that's never been taken to planning. It's, it is it's sometimes amazing how far they'll go to um, or how much they'll risk in order to keep it. But I suppose when you put a million pounds into it, you're, um, you, uh, you feel you've got an awful lot to lose. But uh, yeah, uh, very amazing that you would take it so far. Yeah, that, that's, that's something that the, um, the judge said in the Court of Appeal. Um, they described uh, Wilding, the householder, as entirely the author of his own misfortune. And they, they pointed out what risk he took in building the structure in the first place, knowing that he didn't have planning permission. And they said it seems unlikely that any rational person would take such a risk. So, yeah, strong words from the judge. Yeah, yeah. It's going to go down in history along with the the castle in the hay bales in Rygate, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, I think it's up there, isn't it, with that um, one of the most famous enforcement cases of the last um, couple of decades. Fantastic. Okay, well, thanks very much, John. I think our work is done for this fortnight. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. We'll head back in in another couple of weeks to give you another update on the key things that are happening in the sector. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye. Was that goodbye okay, or did it sound a bit... Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye.